0: Let's uh, turn to the 64th chapter of the book of Isaiah, verses 5 through 7. Hear the word of God. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Let's pray. Father. Now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit this first Sunday of Advent. As we reflect, O God, on your word in Isaiah, let your word shine the light on our hearts and the dark places of our soul, that we may long for you and see you more clearly, that we may come to know you in the person and work of your Son Jesus, and that we may be transformed by the renewing work of your spirit. And pray, O God, that we would leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent marks not the end of the Christian calendar, but the beginning of the Christian calendar. Sometimes what we call the beginning of the liturgical year. Now, I didn't grow up... uh, With an appreciation for the liturgical calendar, and Advent was my first introduction. Easter was my second introduction. And yes, we call it Easter, not Resurrection Sunday, because Easter's a whole season. It's not just one day. And Advent is the same way. Advent is not just December 25th Christmas. It's a whole season that prepares us for this time of year. Now, Uh, Most Christians, if they think of Advent at all, it's kind of like a liturgical play acting where we are going to pretend for a moment that Jesus hasn't really been born so that when he is born, we can be really excited that he's come. But that's not really what Advent is about. In fact, some ways, Advent is not about Christmas at all. Christmas Christmas is really about the incarnation. The incarnation is about Christmas. They go hand in hand. But Advent is really about preparing us for Christ's return, his next coming. Fleming Rutledge says, Advent is out of phase with our time because it encroaches on us in an uncomfortable way, making us feel somewhat uneasy with its stubborn resistance to Christmas cheer. After all, she goes on to say, If your loved one is in the habit of buying you expensive Christmas gifts, you might not be so crazy about the idea that Jesus is coming back before Santa Claus gets here. And so Advent is not so much about the preparation for Christmas, that is, the emphasis is not so much on Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem, but rather on the coming of Jesus as the judge of all things at the end of time. That may be new for some of you. Now, in the beginning of the book of Matthew, John, the baptizer, sees the crowds coming out from Jerusalem, 16 miles east at the Jordan River where he's baptizing, and he sees the Pharisees. This is in the beginning of the book of Matthew. and he says, You brood of vipers, who has warned you of the wrath to come? Kind of an odd way to start off the book of Matthew. Fleming Rutledge again comments on this. She says, John doesn't proclaim Jesus as a captivating infant, smiling benevolently at groups of astorted rustics and potent and farm animals. Instead, he cries out, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That is the image of Jesus right out of the gate in the very first chapters of the book of Matthew from John's voice. The one who is preparing the people for the work of the Son of God. And in John's mind, he sees Jesus as the great judge. The one who will make all things right in the end by separating the wheat from the chaff. And if you don't know what the chaff is, the chaff is that part of the wheat stalk that looks like wheat, but it's not. It burns very easily. And in his mind, Jesus is the one separating the righteous from the unrighteous. He is the judge. And John the Baptist was a part of a tradition that lamented that things were not the way they should be. He longed for the world to be made right. And so he saw in the coming of Jesus the Messiah, one who would put all things to rights. The powerful in John's day oppressed the weak, and evil seemed to prosper at every turn. It can sound like the world we live in now at times. And so Advent teaches us not to pretend the world is cheery and bright just because it's Christmas time, but that some things in your life need to be lamented. And the whole idea is that the coming of Jesus Christ the first time was preceded by lament about the way the world was and lament over the things that shouldn't be. A few minutes ago, you had a moment to lament the things in your life that aren't the way they're supposed to be. Matt led us in a confession of lament. And then he prayed a prayer of hopeful expectation that Christ would come and make all things right. When Mike and Stacy came up here a moment ago to light the first Advent candle, they read from Isaiah's prophecy that one day the nations would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and that war would be no more. They were asking, they were really asking, that Christ would fully establish his rule and reign in a world. Where there's so much darkness. And so, this first Sunday of Advent, we don't pretend that everything is sweetness and light. We don't pretend that everything is candy canes and rejoicing and fun, because that would not square with the world we live in. That would not square with the life each of you live every day. And so, Advent does not begin with tinsel and lights but in the darkness. In fact, I instructed those that set up the stage to hold off a Sunday or two on our banners. For those of you that were here last year and the year before, you know those banners we have hanging down of the wise men on their journey? I said, hold off on that. We're not there yet in the season. It's too early for that. And it's tricky for us because right after Thanksgiving, our culture you know, rushes us headlong over the cliff right into Christmas without any time in between to even prepare for Christmas season. Again, Advent doesn't begin with tinsel and lights. It begins in the darkness. And we're not so good at sitting in the darkness. We're not so good at mourning and lament. A few weeks ago, the men's study and our Connect group, we talked about lament And how our culture, because we live in a very triumphalistic culture, we don't do well with lament. We want to minimize seasons of lament to as brief as humanly possible, and we want to skip right to the rejoicing. In fact, the study was done recently of all of the hymns that churches sing, and only a very, very tiny percentage of those songs are lament songs. Now, in contrast to that, in the Bible, the Psalms contain many lament Psalms, where David or the writers of the book of Psalms are lamenting that things are not the way they're supposed to be in the world. We don't do so good with lament. I've been to funerals where people, Christians often, have a complete inability to mourn. And it's not one group's fault. It's, again, it's our culture's triumphalistic attitude. We want to skip right to the rejoicing. And in this inability to mourn, they say things like, it's a celebration of life. I can't stand that. <laughs> I just can't stand that. And the next time I hear someone say, don't mourn, it's a celebration of their life, I'm like, going to lose it. Because death and celebration don't go hand in hand. Death is not the way the world is supposed to be. It's not to be celebrated, it's to be mourned and lamented. You know, when Jesus shows up to the death of his friend Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, he doesn't say, Now, now, he's in a better place. No, he weeps. Jesus weeps. That's profound. That Jesus, who has the power, and he knows the end from the beginning, he has the power of life and death, he laments over the death of his friend, Lazarus. Death is a horrible intrusion into God's good world brought about by sin. And if you go directly from enjoying someone who's living to celebrating when they die without taking the time to lament, you're completely missing the point. And I say all that to say that if we rush headlong into Christmas season right after Thanksgiving without taking a moment to understand why the arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago and the coming of Jesus in the future is a glorious thing in the face of darkness in our world, we will completely miss the point. Other cultures get this intuitively. They mourn for days, weeks, sometimes months when someone dies. But the true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death. It looks directly at it. And when God tells the story of Christmas to us, he includes rather than removes all the painful details. Isn't it interesting, in our culture, even Christians, we only include like The flowery details, the things that make for good decoration and storytelling, but we leave out some of the painful details. And there were a lot of painful details to the Christmas story. I think about the fact that a political order, an order went out, a political decree from Caesar that a census should be taken so they could tax all of the known world. And that means that Joseph had to go to the home, his ancestral homeland in Bethlehem from the north, a 90-mile journey with his pregnant wife on a horse bouncing the whole way in the outdoors. There was no commuter bus, no train. In the open air, exposed, and they had no political power, no voice of lobby to, to make a plea for them. They had to travel the 90 miles all the way down to Bethlehem This pregnant woman bouncing up and down on a donkey. I can only imagine the pain in her back and her belly. And when they get there, they're shown absolutely no favor. No favor whatsoever. They get to the inn and there's no room. There's no hospitality. I can only imagine the indignity of Joseph, a husband who's got to lay his wife down in this stinky manger. And you know what's in mangers and barns. They smell. It smells he lays his wife down to give birth. And there's no midwife, there's no doctor, there's no hospital, there's no saline drip to make sure she's hydrated. None of those things. And then, of course, there's a the slaughter of the innocents. After Jesus is born, Herod hears that one who has, is meant to be king of the Jews is born, and he wipes out a whole generation of children. And Joseph and Mary narrowly escape And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. It stares directly into the face of death, and Advent does that too. It doesn't shy away from the painful details of our lives to pretend that all is bright and cheery. True Advent, the true and honest Christmas spirit is able to look directly in the face of the most painful details of our lives and not flinch. If we begin this season without proper lament, we'll run the risk of making the message of Christmas cheap and false. Just the other day at the Catholic supply store updating the lament. On, the other day at the Catholic supply store on Manchester, I don't know how many of you heard the story, someone went in and tied up three women and assaulted them and killed one of them in the back room for no good reason. And two weeks ago, a Christian missionary, John Allen Chow, who had prepared for several years to reach the most isolated group of people on the planet, the Sentinelese tribe, on a protected island in the Bay of Bengal off the coast of India. Anyone hear of this story? And he came under criticism for not only breaking the law of India, which said that you couldn't go to that island, but also um, for trying to reach an untouched people group. You know, it's not in vogue anymore to take the gospel to indigenous peoples for fear of somehow molesting that culture. But in his mind, the gospel was just too important. The gospel is something that transcends all cultures, all tribes, all indigenous ways. And so he went to preach the gospel, and the minute he came ashore, he was killed. And I thought to myself this past week, where would the church be if the gospel was only taken into safe places? Where would would we be here if missionaries only thought to go into places that they were guaranteed safety? Where would the church be? Where would we be if the gospel was not taken into the darkest places of our world? Again, Advent begins in the dark. And Israel and Palestine in the first century was a very dark place. I mean, Jesus could not have come into the world at a worse time, politically, politically culturally. There was so much tension. And when we think about the atrocities committed, not only by Herod, but by the murderers of that missionary, before we're quick to condemn others, we need to listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who says that even our best selves are distorted and unclean. Even our righteous deeds are are like a polluted garment. He says, In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You have hid your face from us and delivered us into the hands of our iniquities. Be not exceedingly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. And in Psalm 84, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angered? You have fed your people with the bread of tears. Lament is absolutely appropriate this time of year. As in solidarity, we experience that longing and expectation of one who will make everything right in our world. It is right for us to take a moment to recognize, to take a moment this season, not just this morning, but maybe this entire week, maybe the entire month before Christmas comes, to think about why it matters that we want Jesus to return. I mean, why does it matter that Jesus would return? If our lives are just peachy the way they are, why would we want Jesus to return? I mean, think about that for a moment. For those in the first century who were living it up, Herod certainly didn't want the arrival of the Messiah on the scene. He was doing just fine. But for the rest of God's people who were oppressed and under the heavy yoke of Rome and recognized that they were in their sins and need of deliverance, oh, they longed for the Messiah's arrival. Do we long for the return of Jesus Christ? in all of our theological formulations as we think about not trying to predict dates that make us look silly and all of those things, and that's good. That's good for us not to get caught up in date predicting because so many people in the past have looked foolish doing that. Somehow, some way, sometimes we lose the whole sense of anticipation and the longing for Christ to return because that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ to put this world to rights, Now, not everything in your life is wrong. Some things are right. Praise the Lord for that. That's God's grace, his common grace. Holding the world together, keeping our lives in such a way where we can carry on day after day, preventing asteroids from crashing into the planet and wiping us all out. But there are other things. I hope when we had that moment of acknowledgement of lament where we closed our eyes... I thought of a few things in my life that were not the way they're supposed to be and there were grievances to God. This is not right, God. That's not right. This shouldn't be. That's not the way it's supposed to be. If you didn't do that, I hope sometime this week you'll take time to do that. And what's remarkable about Scripture is that... Complaints against God are made to his face. If you really, really take inventory of the biblical narrative, especially in the Old Testament and the wisdom literature, in the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, even in the book of Job, grievances about the way the world is are not made behind God's back. They're made directly to God's face. The psalmist and the writer of Ecclesiastes and Job himself is uttering their grievances directly to God. This is an arresting feature of biblical faith. Even when God appears to be absent, the community goes on addressing him, protesting to him. When God, as Isaiah said in the passage we just read, seems to be hiding his face from us, we still protest to him, because deep down we know God is there, even when he feels absent. And so the people of God cry out and say, will you restrain yourself from all of these things, oh God? Will you see all the brokenness in this world and not do anything about it? The woman who walked into that supply store, maybe just looking for a few Advent holiday trinkets or some decorations, completely unexpected about what was about to happen. God, will you see these things and stay quiet? That's the cry of the people of God. God, do you see what's going on in my life? And will you remain silent? Will you be quiet? Do you restrain yourself on all of these things, God, that you see in the world? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? That is the cry of Lament. As we long for the coming of the Lord to return to make all things right, we cry out to God, do you see this world we live in? But this isn't the whole story. I said a minute ago that complaints against God are made to his face. And Fleming Rutledge again comments on this. And she says, Isaiah's lament begins with an affirmation of God who God is, and a list of all the great things He's done for the people in the past. The lament carries within it, in spite of its apparent hopelessness, a kind of hope, against hope, a kind of expectation, a kind of insistence that God has got to do something. And so, in packed within the very lament itself and complaint and grievance against God is a hopeful expectation. Because when you make a grievance to someone, you're hoping and longing and desiring that they'll hear that grievance and respond in a way that remedies the situation. And that is how biblical faith works. Being a strong Christian is not pretending that everything is okay. I have faith in God. Everything's going to be okay. That wouldn't be honest. Because our hearts cry out against the things that are wrong. And our hearts cry out to God to fix So where is God when it's dark? The church proclaims that he never hides himself to no purpose. Somewhere, somehow, in spite of all appearances, his vindication awaits the proper moment. Just as 21 centuries ago, God was waiting at the proper moment, and the Bible says, in the fullness of time, he came born of a woman, born under the law, at the proper moment. And in some very real way, God withholds himself so that we never take his presence for granted. In some way, God lets us feel that longing for him in his absence so that we will never take his presence for granted. Because at the heart of Advent season is the proclamation that God did not remain where he was, high above the misery of his creation, but came down incognito, if you will, in the midst of it. And he didn't just come to sympathize. Even incognito, Jesus of Nazareth had the power to heal every disease and drive out every demon. He had power to do this at every level because he came not just for the poor and the wretched, but he came for the well-fed and the well-dressed also. Because it's not just the oppressed, who need God to come and rescue them from their misery, it's every one of us who may eat well and are clothed and warm. We need God to rescue us from our sins. To each and all we bring this announcement. God will come and his justice will prevail. He will destroy evil with all of its pain and all of its forms, once and forever. That's what we wait for in our expectation of the return of Jesus as the judge of all things at the end of time, to make all things right. And so to be a Christian is to live in expectation of that fulfillment. The life of the church, lived in solidarity with those in darkness, carries with it the embodiment of a certainty that when he comes again, it will be the God of mercy and no one else, and darkness will end and there will be mourning. And I end with this final words from Isaiah, in Isaiah 64 and 9: "Do not be exceeding angry, exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider we are all your people. Let's pray. God, now we pray and cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Our hearts are filled with the longing and expectation and hope, O oh God, that one day you will return in power and glory to establish your rule and reign and put an end to all injustice, misery, and evil, and wickedness, and pain, and that you will restore the order of this good creation to your original intention that on this earth there will flourish a kingdom that is everlasting. When heaven and earth become one and we receive, Lord, that glory, the glory that Christ received at his resurrection, glorified bodies, the redemption of our bodies, for which the whole world groans and we groan along with it together, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Father, now, as we enter this Advent season, let our hearts be lifted up in hope for your return, even as we lament the things in this world that are not the way they're supposed to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.